0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling. Pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads connect us to a changing way of life? Out of the darkness, into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, Shortly, a conversation with Ed Davis, author of The Last Professional. After the break, contributor Rory Vesey sits down, Amanda Chlaminian, author of Born to Rewild. I believe every book has an origin story. For example, I first met Lee Stringer when he came into my TV studio for a television interview for Davidson & Company. He was homeless for many, many years, he lived. You're not know, going to believe this. This is true. He lived in the tunnels of Grand Central Station. And there's a funny. There's a hierarchy there. The more sane were the people closest to the top tunnels, and as you got deeper and deeper, the much more troubled people. So one day, he's in his little, wherever he's hiding out in the tunnels, this little cutout hovel, wherever you want to call it, cave, and he's got a pencil that he uses to clean out his crack pipe. And he starts writing. And out of that pencil that he used to clean out his crack pipe, he wrote a book called Grand Central Winter. He turned his life around. And a good friend of the podcast, uh, Peter Blouner, who's been on previous episodes, became one of his champions. And his life changed from being a crack addict, being homeless, to being an acclaimed writer. And if you get a chance to take a look at it, you can order it anywhere, Amazon, local bookstores, libraries. It's called Grand Central Winter. Now, why do I say that? Why did I mention that little story? Because I believe my guest, and he's going to correct me if I'm wrong, Ed Davis, who's the author of The Last Professional, which I just finished reading a few days ago, may have his own origin story for his book. I believe Ed was 1970s. It involves a boxcar, a spiral notebook, and a big pen. Do I capture that correctly in terms of your origin story for this book called *The Last Professional*?
2: Larry, you've got it just right. And uh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a delight to be here.
1: So Shakespeare once said, I think he said this or wrote it: "All the world is a stage." In a sense, in terms of your book, is the boxcar or the boxcars a moving stage?
2: Absolutely. Um, it, it's for, for those who haven't ever ridden on one, actually the physical structure is a bit like that. You've right. got a door that's sort of the shape of a proscenium on a stage or a, uh, you know, a, a movie screen. So you're looking out from this sort of protected environment right. and into the world that's passing by in front of you. And it's a world from riding a boxcar that most people don't see. Uh, trains go through every, the country's backyard, basically. So you see it unvarnished uh, in all its splendor and rawness.
1: So as a young man, what got you on the boxcars? I, I assume they can look at you in the 1970s, you were a young man.
2: <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> I am not anymore. Um, I had... Uh, I started my working career um, as a psychiatric technician at Sonoma State Hospital. Uh, it was the largest mental institution in the country at the time, and I was way too young when I started. I was seventeen. Did it for a couple of years, and it was an extraordinary experience, but kind of soul-sucking. It was very. It was the days before the um, advancements in evolution of the care of the handicapped had happened so it was still the dark ages and i did that for a couple years and i had to get out um a friend of a friend wanted to go to scotland to trace his lineage we got uh in those days you could get an open-ended Airline ticket for 200 bucks from Kennedy to Heathrow and back. Right, We had to get to the East Coast. We started in California. We were going to hitchhike. We're two great big guys um, with great big Army surplus backpacks. No one was giving us a ride. And so finally, a guy takes pity on us, picks us up in a van, says, you guys are doing this all wrong. You should be riding freight trains. It's riding freight trains. You know, is that a thing you can do? Say, yeah, I've, I've done it. I'll tell you a little bit about it. He drops us at the freight yard in Eugene, Oregon. Half an hour later, we're on a flat car. It's a hot, sunny day. We are sailing north. I am sold and I never look back. Uh, it's something about it just spoke to me. So that's how I started writing.
1: Uh, I recently saw a documentary about Charlie Chaplin called The Real Charlie Chaplin. And, of course, he's considered one of the greatest physical comedians of all time. And, of course, his main character, signature character, was The Little Tramp with a Tramp, which, by right. the way, he did not invent that character. That goes many years before in burlesque, and he kind of just refined it in his own way. And those baggy clothes he wore were Fatty Arbuckle's clothes from wherever they were in Hollywood, and that's where the baggy clothes came from. So the reason why I'm referencing Charlie Chaplin is because in his life and also some of the movies that he made, there was a sense of abandonment. And I think some of your characters, especially Lyndon Hoover, Frisco, is really dealing with – Almost in a sense that he's wrestling with this and doesn't quite understand it, but is dealing with abandonment. Is that accurate?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think the best literary fiction is all it all comes from life experience. I think we all as authors we're even if we don't think we are, we're writing autobiographically. Uh, my folks split up when I was five years old. Uh, right. One day my dad was there. The next day he wasn't. Basically, we moved to the West Coast. Um, So there's a theme in my life and clearly in this characters of seeking a mentor, seeking a father who's missing. It's interesting that it, it, the same theme plays out. I don't know if you've read much Kerouac. Yes, I did. Yes. Yeah. So Kerouac and, and Neil Cassidy are essentially always looking for Cassidy's dad. Um, And so that, that theme of searching for the person who's absent from your life, that abandonment runs through a lot of great fiction. And it's, it's a well I've tapped into.
1: It's funny. You mentioned Kerouac, a friend of mine is a playwright and his play was called The Last Call set in Northport on Long Island, the last days Kerouac was on Long Island before he moved his mother to Florida. Pat Fenton is the playwright and terrific. And also I'll throw one other name out there because one of the great books of all is the Grapes of Wrath, which is really a true migration story. And one of the highlights of my professional life was sitting down interviewing Thomas Steinbeck, his son.
2: Really? And, and
1: the connect really? he wrote a book called Down to a Soundless Sea. He came into the studio for one interview and he said, I'm not leaving because he was on a book tour and he stayed for a- another interview. So I have 60 straight uh, minutes with him. And, of course, the, connect- the connection to history is what's so special to me. So yeah. let me, let me – once kind of re- uh, referencing all these people – Is it an oxymoron to say, in your opinion, is a hobo version of the American dream?
2: Not at all. And I I think the term hobo has been out of use for so long that people may not understand the historical uh, context until they think about it a little bit. Um, Essentially, when the transcontinental railroad came in right after the Civil War, suddenly this sense of freedom and possibility, not unlike our Internet now, opened to the entire country. Um, there was a time when 95% of the population of this country lived within five miles of a railroad track. Right. So people who had never been farther than a day's walk from their home could get on a train and go anywhere. Couple that with the Great Depression, and you've got hundreds of thousands of people on the move. Steinbeck captured that so beautifully uh, in The Grapes of Wrath among the those that throng, there was a hierarchy, absolutely. And there were people who were just there because there was no place else to be. There were people there whose intent was, I just got to get from point A to point B to get a job. Right. And there were some people who the lifestyle spoke to in a special way. Um, a modern equivalent might be the folks who walk the Appalachian Trail every year, or the Pacific Crest Trail, or the guys who surf every day, or the ones who don't feel complete unless they've summited each of the peaks, each of the highest peaks in the world. These guys were professional hobos, profesh, they called themselves. And in in this world, they were the top of the heap, and they rode to ride. That's why they did it.
1: Uh, So hierarchy fascinates me in all its various permutations. You You mentioned profesh. There was profesh. There were the Johnsons, and as you say in your book, there were the others. So let's let's explore that because that has dramatic resonance with your book, The Last Professional. You want to amplify on that?
2: Sure. Well, there were three sort of traditional categories. There were, um, they were counted as hobos worked and wondered, tramps just wondered, and bums didn't either. Um, it's an oversimplification, and it sort of ignores – Again, like in the Depression, the huge numbers of people who were simply there out of desperation. um, They had no place else to go. So that's, um, that's sort of how the world was structured. It hasn't changed an awful lot. What we would have called hobos 70 or 80 years ago, now we call the unhoused. Uh, in many places, we see them. I'm in Portland, Oregon right now. You can't drive under an overpass without seeing the tents and the cardboard shacks. So, this has always been a part of our society. Actually, it may have been a little less visible when the trains were so ubiquitous.
1: I'm a big movie fan. So, right now, this movie pops into my head Nomad Land. Yes. See, the, the new version. Of the migration, the hobos out of work, but it's a society, it's a hierarchy, and they kind of reach out to each other and support each other. There's rules to this, but that movie kind of speaks to that in terms in, in, in a newer way, but in an older way, of what you're addressing in your book.
2: Exactly. They, they would have been called rubber tire tramps in the old days. But, and, and I think the, the piece that most resonates with The Last Professional is the Francis McGorman character who, when given a choice to abandon that nomadic life, right. decides she doesn't want to. Some, something there is feeding her needs, is feeding her soul, is resonating with her sense of herself. And uh, that, that's what I try to touch into in The Last Professional.
1: You've been just joining us. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is Ed Davis. The book is called The Last professional. In a sense, this is my takeaway. And the beauty of books, Ed, is each of us could bring into the book and take away what we want based on what we're reading, but more based on our own life experiences. And that's what I did with this for me. I believe your characters, and you've got three main characters, are running away from and running towards something. I don't no spoiler alerts, but the ending is the culmination of all of this. Um Yep. Did you give much – I know you thought about it a lot, so that's a silly question, but I like the way you set the whole thing up.
2: Well, great. And, and, and it's – you can take – as an author, you can take a hit sometimes for what appear like um, coincidences that are, that are much too coincidental. And whenever anybody brings that up, I come back to Dickens. I come back to those stories where there is some sort of sense of fated destiny – where characters' paths are going to meet eventually, and th- that's that's part of the last professional is a journey story. Okay. I mean, it's journeys are the oldest stories we tell one another, and there are parallel journeys that, in the climax, come
1: together. One of the biggest dis- disappointments in my life was going up to massachusetts for an award ceremony and i we went with my brother that's our annual road trip each year we go someplace else if we won an award for the tv program i was doing at the time we got to see plymouth rock now Mm. it was so disappointing by the size but it's a touchstone so in a sense is there a metaphysical version of touchstones for the hobo did it? Did it emanate someplace that they say this? This because you, you have an end game in this book, but I'm I'm going right. back to: is there a metaphysical touchstone for the hobo way of life?
2: Well, I, I think rather than a place, it's a state of mind. Okay, and I think and I think it's I think it's freedom and a sense of unique connection with the country and the landscape as an as an entity. I mean, Kerouac and Steinbeck both got this. They understood that our American culture is part, is partly formed by where we are, and whether it was hitchhiking or you know the Okies moving to the west, whatever it was, it was a sense of how do how do I interact in this incredible environment, and how does it become a part of who I am? As a hobo, and I consider myself a hobo, though I haven't caught a boxcar in 40 years i can't hear a distant train whistle Mm -hmm. without going to that touchstone place that that's the whole deal we never stop riding
1: you know i'm glad you said hearing listening that's you engaging one of the senses and there is a rhythm to the sound of the boxcars on the rails and that rhythm is fascinates me. So the first part of the question, part A, can you explain that rhythm in terms of your experience but also your character's experience? And then for the people out there who are readers and want to write something, do you have your own rhythm when you sit down to write?
2: Great question. So the actual uh, rhythm, which is very hypnotic of trains, comes from the joints in the rails. And conventional rails are, shoot, I don't know, they're 50 yards, 40 yards long. There's at every at every joint the wheels click over that it can be very soothing if you get onto what's called a flat wheeled car right. and again train wheels have their, their steel obviously on steel rails but if the brakes have been applied too hard a flat spot gets ground in the wheels and it becomes what's called a flat wheeler that rhythm can kill you if you're on a long time because there's no springs on these cars. You're literally being bounced off the floor with every turn of the wheel. Uh, but anybody who's ridden on a passenger train, had a sleeper, the, the the rhythmic sound of the wheels on those track joints is very soothing and will just put people to sleep, frankly. Um, do I have a rhythm? Uh, one of the things I know that I... I appreciate travel more when I write. So I don't have to travel to write, but anytime I travel, I find myself writing. And I think that's because I, I think we see ourselves best against an unfamiliar backdrop. Okay. And so that, uh, big ball point pen and that spiral notebook never leave my side if I leave home. Um,
1: this, this book is edifying for those of us that have written Long Island Railroad and other trains but never been on boxcars. So I want you to kind of describe for the audience what was the technique for getting onto a boxcar. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I think about is um, people that spend a good life on the water, at sea, fishermen, whatever, travelers, have to something that's called sea legs. Some terms that people who ride the boxcars. Is there a on the water version of having boxcar lakes? Is when you kind of get off and you've been moving and moving and moving and you're on terra firma, I wonder that the equilibrium is thrown off a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think you've got some hobo in you um, because you nailed it. First of all, the way to get onto a boxcar, and this is the advice that every young rider is given and immediately ignore, is never get on one that's moving because it's amazingly dangerous. And this is my public service portion of the program in which I need to say to your listeners, this is amazingly dangerous, it's also illegal. People die doing this all the time and people still do it. So the first thing you're advised, the first thing I was told was to never get on a moving boxcar. The next day I caught a moving boxcar um the things you learn are you don't reach for the forward edge of the door you reach for the back edge because if you're reaching for the forward edge it's pulling away from you and end up grabbing air and you don't try to be graceful you just push as hard with your legs as you can and dive in on your belly if you try to look pretty it's not gonna work all right
1: points the three main characters which is linden which is the duke and also short arm spooky And because he's got various nomenclatures in terms of his backstory and their backstories, they get involved with a traveling carnival. And right now there's a movie out there called – let me me reference it up – Nightmare Alley, which is about a traveling uh, carnival getting great reviews. So I love the whole scene you set up. And once again, a hierarchy of a low-grade traveling carnival. All the games are fixed but the characters, once again, it's another character story and it's a gambling element to this. So you want to kind of take it from where I am to where you are?
2: Sure. It's so that's almost all based on, um, things that I did. I worked for a traveling carnival for a period of time. Um, and it was one exactly like depicted in the book. These guys barely had it together. They, you know, they had a passing relationship with the law at best, and there was a very clear structure within it. Who had the power? Who didn't? Um, it's. I spent you know three or four days with them running a, a crooked game. Right. My wife was traveling with me at the time. Uh, she and I caught freight trains around the country 45 years ago, and she's still with me, which is ex- extraordinary they put her running the only game in the show that wasn't rigged because her conscience wouldn't let her do it. Uh, but at the end of this, uh, they called it a, you know, a still dated at a County fair, they offered me my own tilt-a-whirl game. So it was a career choice. You know, I could have had, um, fame and fortune running a tilt-a-whirl, tilt-a-whirl game, but instead I
1: became a writer. The book once again, is called The Last Professional." And my guest is Ed Davis. Now, I've had a little bit of wanderlust in my early life. I've traveled across America in many different ways, in a bus, in cars, um, and once um, on a bicycle from New York to California. All right. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I took a year off from teaching, and I just said, I want to do this. And and once again, you see America that way because you're so close to the road that when I got to California, went to see my sister up in Berkeley, and I was on a bus – my whole perceptions changed. I was obviously moving much faster in a bus than I was on my bicycle. And of course I was elevated. And that was my first thought is my perceptions have changed in this brief period of time going across country on my own power and then being on a powered vehicle. So I'm getting to the point for certain people there is wanderlust in their DNA and that's just what they're going to do. And I think you probably have it inside of you.
2: I, th- I think I think that's very, very true. Um, I think hobos were our country's original Zen masters. They understood that, uh, you know, like the tides and the weather, trains will move at their own speed, and right. if you're going to become part of that world, you have to gain patience with it. But yeah, Wonderlust is—it's part of the DNA, I think, of our makeup. Um, I think if your listeners look back in their family trees, don't, you don't have to go very far. You know, One generation, maybe two, there's probably an uncle, there's probably a grandfather, there's probably a family friend who had that as well, and quite likely may have ridden the rails.
1: Uh, years ago, there was a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Persig. And the reason why I bring this up, because it's it really philosophical. And in between chapters, you have something called track one to the last track. And I think – I can't speak for you. I think in my take, that's another version of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's very philosophical, and it's beautifully done because we are not quite sure who the narrator is. And that's, that's even better, trying to figure that out. But the way you put it into the book, moving from one chapter to another – could almost be standalone book of philosophy.
2: Larry, you're making my day. It, it, it's an original concept with those pieces was that I wanted to think about what's an archetypal wanderer look like? What, what's the world look like to them? What motivates them? Right. Um, what are the things they consider? What have they sacrificed in the service of that wanderlust? And so that's what the track sections are really about examining both the, what you gain and what you lose from making that lifestyle choice. And you literally have made my day by appreciating those.
1: There was an, I read, I read this in a, I think, New York times magazine on Sunday and it was a quote from a, an artist of Kenyan descent. And she said, when a grandfather dies, you lose a whole library. I've asked this question lot, periodically before and I'd get different answers And the reason why I bring this up now, because I think the Duke is the last head librarian in your story, because it's very true, you know, all of us have parents, our parents, grandparents have secrets, and when they die, it goes with them, and we lose that. It's a part of a life that I think we need to understand a little bit more, but it's gone. And I think that's what she's addressing, talking about a grandparent then unless you really connect with them, t- this is not about a physical book. It's about a connection. Right. And right. I think for me, the Duke is that a connection to the history of what he represents as the last professional?
2: Exactly so. And, and it's a bit of a homage to Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans in okay. Chicachico. Right. Uh, and it, it's the thing, it, it's true in every era for every society. Er- eras are ending all the time um it, you know it's was it seneca that said every beginning's ending is a new beginning or something like that i've blown the quote right. but so yeah that's who the duke is he is a repository of this information it's the culmination of how he's lived his life and the question is will it live beyond him uh and that's really sort of a question we all get to face will what we've done here survive us or are we it and what, what do we pass on? And is there someone who wants to accept it?
1: That's a good point. Is part of the book, in a small way, a graphic novel with the drawings?
2: It, it, it is. Um, but again, and I think you've gotten the impression from our conversation that I'm sort of a classicist. So you know, Much more way- than
1: I am. I appreciate that. You've elevated the whole conversation.
2: The great literary fiction of a 100 years ago, the stuff that I cut my teeth on, Steinbeck and Fitzgerald and Hemingway, of course, was often illustrated. Um, my favorite illustrator uh, was Rockwell Kent. who did the amazing illustrations for the Random House edition of Moby Dick. Right. And they add something in a way that was lost in literary fiction. And then this amazing resurgence of graphic novels came up, which was so cool. But in my view, they lost a little bit, too, in that they lean so heavily on the graphics. So I wanted to take a chance to sort of reintroduce that notion of augmenting illustrations in, in a style which I think s- speaks back to Rockwell Kent's to... As you said, tell the story yet another way. The tracks tell the story in a way. The illustrations almost tell their own story. And then there's the narrative, of course. Very
1: much so. We have two minutes left. This is what I always like to do, because when I walk away from doing an interview and it's three o'clock in the morning, I think, did I ask the right questions? Did I ask the wrong questions? And it's too late to fix that. So, with two minutes left, is there anything I've left out? of the book the conversation or something you just want to raise that we haven't touched upon yet
2: i think the the only thing would be that it's it's not just an adventure but it's actually a bit of a cultural touchstone i hope right uh each chapter begins with an epigraph that's really a bit of hobo poetry or some uh song lyrics or quotes and so it's another way of accessing this vanishing way of life and so that's my hope in creating the book is that there are lots of ways into the last professional for potential viewers and hopefully a lot that they can resonate with that's the whole idea we write as writers so we can share and connect that's the whole that's why we do
1: it well i gotta say this as we wrap up this uh part of the podcast. Uh, You made a definite connection with me. And I I love the book. I love where you portray the book. And uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Thoughtful Periscope. Well, Larry, thank you. It's been a delight. Uh, After the break, Rory Vesey stops by for another really interesting conversation about a changing way of life. I'm Larry Davidson. We'll be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Join the conversation right now with contributor Rory Vesey, and she's got a very special interview. Rory, take it away.
3: Manda Kalimian. Yes, Uh, it's very nice to meet you thank you for doing this interview
4: thanks for having me (laughs) well you just recently released
3: a book born to rewild about horses and people and the environment and before we start talking about the book i'd like to ask you a question and yours will be twofold because you have these two passions horses and saving horses um When you think back in your memory for a picture in your mind, the first thing that you remember when you think when you first fell in love with horses, like, for instance, I once asked a police officer and his response was he saw the red cherry on top of the car and then he knew he wanted to be a policeman. What was it for you that made you fall in love with a horse?
4: What's Um, your earliest memory? So I would have to say that I actually honestly truly believe I was just born like this And the story that my parents tell was one where I was three years old and we were driving. My parents used to, we lived in Manhattan and used to come out to the island on weekends. And on the side of the road was a little stand set up with pony rides, tiny little ponies all decorated. And every time we would drive by, I was crazy. I was just, you know, had to stop and and see the ponies. And my dad took me on a pony ride. So it's like a little pony. Yeah, and I mean that was just you know that is just I am that is who I am. You know,
3: and, and the, the second part is, what's your memory of when it first clicked in you that you had a passion to do something about the plight of the, in particular, the wild horse.
4: So that's 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 a good question, and there's a, a clear, concise moment that I can recall. Um, I received an email. Yeah you know, we all, you know, get lots of spam. And I want to say this was back in 2007. I received an email talking about sign this petition. um, Stop horse, stop the slaughter. Stop, stop you know, horse slaughter here in this country. So I saw, I think that was probably the end of 2006. So I signed the petition and sent it around and did whatever. And then, um, in 2007 or six months later or whatever the period of time was i received another email from a rescue out east talking about the need for help because she had just um this particular rescue had just brought a couple of horses back from the kill buyers one was a pregnant mare and they were on their way to slaughter and i was very confused i didn't understand what that was since The petition I signed for slaughter actually did, you know, slaughter was um, eradicated here, made illegal in this country. So I was unclear on what that was. And that was the beginning of the journey for me, realizing I went out east to Amaryllis. Um, I met with Christine. Um, She explained how this is working, transporting horses over the Canadian and Mexican borders to slaughter facilities, and that was the moment I realized that this was my journey. This was who I was meant to be, and I had something to do.
3: And the role of the United States government in slaughter is kind of blurred. A lot of people don't realize that even though we don't slaughter animals on American soil, we do spend our tax dollars rounding them up, transporting them to Mexico, where they're slaughtered, or transporting them to Canada, who transports them to Europe. So what did you find out about how much money is spent and and explain to us how the horses are rounded up and, and why?
4: Um, so I'm glad we're talking about this and I'm very excited to be able to share this information with your audience, because this is something that everybody has to know about. You don't have to be a particular horse lover or fan or an animal person to understand that this affects everybody, um, from the get go from your tax dollars, from a humanitarian perspective and from an environmental place as well. So what happens is the, um, In 1971, during the Nixon administration, they were, they created the American, I'm getting a little tongue-tied, I get so, so worked up, I don't know what to say first. Uh In 1971, the American Wild Horse and Borough um, Act was passed, and that act supports the protection of our wild horses on our public range lands. And the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, is to oversee the well-being and protection of our wild horses on our public rangelands. Now, when this first occurred 50 years, and it is actually um, a couple weeks ago was just the 50th anniversary of that act being passed. Um, They divided up all the varying states and created herd management areas. So they said... These many horses can live on this much land in these locations. And they are to make sure environmentally that the land remains sustainable for all the animals that live there. Horses, sage, grouse, elk, deer, all the animals that live in the environment. So this was the goal of the act. But really what it is, nobody in the Western Plains states wanted this. So what happens is in order to manage them, they perform these roundups. And the roundups take wild horses off of the lands. And the government says, well, we need to take these horses off the land because there are too many horses and the horses won't survive and they're destroying the lands. But that is really untrue. The government rounds up, there are, um, they round up to the tune of 120 million federal tax dollars your federal tax dollars every year. That's what they spend in rounding up wild horses. We have 70,000 wild horses that are being housed in government holding facilities at this time. You, the taxpayer, are paying for this. And why? Why is that happening? That is primarily happening because the government chooses to use the lands for corporate agricultural farming, oil fracking and drilling, uranium mining, lithium, all of these things they lease out the land for on the taxpayers dying because that those public rangelands belong to the American people. And the horses are mandated to live there, but they use the excuse that there are too many horses to round them up and to use the land for um, special interest groups quite quite honestly. And nobody wants to talk about it. And they
3: round up the horses generally using helicopters.
4: Yes. They chase them down with helicopters. Their Horses travel in bands and the bands are truly families. There is a stallion. There are many mares. And then there are the babies and the dynamic of a herd is of of a family, they care, they love each other, and they have a specific way that they interact. So the government takes helicopters, chases them down, separates the families, divides them up into different locations, Horses die during this process. Babies die, break legs. It's a horrifying situation. If you were to see all these stallions now gathered up and run into these pens and split apart from their families and the stallions fighting each other and rearing up and screaming to get out to their families, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And it's cruel. Cruel, unkind, unkind. Heartbreaking and all for greed, greed and Rory is I really need to say that there's no balance in the use of the land and the excessive use of our land is the primary focus and cause of our climate change issues here in North America today. They, we are the that use of those lands is a major contributor to global climate change.
3: So Amanda you're talking about climate change um, I've heard the term used by the Audubon Society uh, indigenous led conservation uh, they're talking in this case they were talking about birds that are native to these properties that they're trying to show people how helping the indigenous animals is actually a missing piece of the puzzle in helping to stop climate damage let's call it
4: so let me give you a word. It's a buzzword and it's called rewilding. And that's the top of my book was called Born to Rewild. So um, I started this journey om- almost 15 years ago. And when I realized that we needed a sustainable solution to this wild horse crisis, and when I found out that the government considered the horses an invasive species, I was shocked. Because horses are a global species, civilization was built on the back of a horse, no less our country. And the horse evolved here in North America, up in the Yukon. So I said, well, rewilding, which is exactly what you just explained. It is native species to a location. It is helping to rebuild habitat. Rebuilding these novel ecosystems while allowing native species to create biodiversity. And that allows the species right to exist and to survive and to grow. And they build biodiversity and biodiversity is the key to sequestering carbon and sequestering carbon is the key to climate change.
3: So in order for you to enact the change that you want to see, you have to break through the barriers of the government and in your book you talk about how now retired congressman steve israel was able to open some doors for you kind of let you know how politics how washington works so can you tell a little bit about how uh you form saddle pack and how you tried to get how to get some money, get to, get behind this, and make some legislative changes.
4: So um, Congressman Steve Israel, um, what has been an incredible friend to the organization and to the Wild Horses. I met him, um, oh my gosh, maybe eight years ago. We were both at um, a panel. We were both sat on a panel discussion for Wild Horses and Slaughter, Um, at the ASPCA, at the Hampton Classic Horse Show, actually. And um, I knew right away that this was a person that I could approach, and he was approachable, and I could speak to him about this. He was passionate about the animals. And we met, and when I explained to him about rewilding and why this environmental concept was a solution for the wild horse crisis, he understood and he saw the value in that so 8 9 years ago that was that was big because europe has been rewilding but that is not a word that over here in the united states anybody had heard of and he he saw the value of it and helped support me in that introduced me to many other congressional members where i was able to talk about my icon, my concept and my idea And um, I think Steve has been a mentor in explaining and helping me to understand how Washington works in bringing this forward. And um, in 2019, um, Congressman Israel, of course, was key in helping us to get language written into the appropriation budget bill that actually says rewilding is a viable concept and management tool for wild horses. So that was huge.
3: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't that long ago, maybe it was 2018, when they tried to pass a bill that would actually open slaughterhouses in in America?
4: Yes. So what I have found happens is every year, the wild horse issue, of course, is a big issue because it takes up a lot of money. And it depends what's happening in which states certain congressional or Senate members decide slaughter should be an option to remove or get rid of all the horses because it's costing a lot of money, costing the taxpayer all this money. So yes, back in 2018, once again, slaughter had been brought up as an option, right, as a viable option to alleviate all these wild horses and the burden on the taxpayers. And so we had to fight to, you know, through all kinds of awareness campaigns and speak to all kinds of congressional members and explain to them that the American people do not stand behind slaughter of wild horses and that there is a viable solution. Rewilding is a solution, not only will it rehome these horses, but if you allow them as mega herbivores to do their job, we can rebuild grasslands and grassland ecology. And that is the key to slowing down climate change. The horses are the key to this. They are mega herbivores, like bison and like cattle, but cattle produce tremendous amount of methane emissions in their waste. And there are so many, there's just an overabundance of cattle everywhere. And, and so this was how we, we stopped slaughter again, by saying the American people don't support this. You cannot slaughter horses. It is, you know, these are iconic creatures that are native species to North America.
3: And Amanda, you've, you've made some connections and sounds like friendships with some Native Americans who have been able to help you uh, yeah. learn about the horse, about the grasslands, and, and also aid you in, in, in doing this. So could you tell us a little bit about them, particularly about Mo, who you talk about in your book?
4: Yes. So, um, oh, and I just want to go back and answer, because you did ask me about the pack. And so okay. during this period of time with Congressman Israel, one of the things I did do was create a pack. We called it Saddle Pack. But, I'm bum. <laughs> but, I'm bum. but uh, to help raise money, to build awareness, to fight all of the issues, as you were, were speaking. Um. So I always believed when I first started out on my journey, that indigenous culture, they, of course, are the ones that have the greatest connection to the planet. They are the ones that understand the value of nature and the balance and how to connect and respect. And um, I, through, you know, connections was I used to go out West. I traveled around, you know, you meet one person, one person introduces you to another and another. And through those contacts and connections, I was introduced to a gentleman named Moses brings plenty. And he is a Lakota spiritual man. Some of you may know him. He is on Yellowstone. And that's how everybody
1: recognizes the notion. I'll raise this question to both of you right now, if you don't mind. Yellowstone is amazing television. Thanks to Kevin Costner and the guy who created the thing, Sheridan. And in this there, you, you understand the beauty of horses and hopefully you both will respond cause you're horse people, but there's a segment where they're training, cutting horses for competition. And the way these animals move, besides the regular horses on the ranch and everything else, is almost like ballet. So I don't want to short circuit both of you, but watching this gives me appreciation for the communication between the man and the horse and the beauty of the movement. So if you guys don't mind just sharing your thoughts about the way they communicate in the movement between the rider and the animal. I've
3: watched and I've been a part of amazing sessions of training, and there's nothing like being in unison with that horse. And I think every horse person will agree, if you've had your horse of a lifetime, if you've gotten to have that relationship at least once with one horse, that's it. It's it's the drop the mic moment in your life. And, um, they, they, they want to communicate with you. They, I really believe they are spiritual beings. They're very vulnerable, although they're big and they're strong. And some people see them as dangerous. They're vulnerable creatures. They're, you know, if you look at their legs, you look at their feet compared to their bodies, um, even their digestive system, everything about them is vulnerable and strong at the same time. And you'd rather ask somebody, you know, if you have a horse uh, you'd, you'd rather someone ask to borrow your car than to, to for a ride on your horse. They're so sensitive to who they communicate with. So that's kind of the best way I can describe it without getting into the whole tactical training of the horse.
4: And could I just add from the spiritual side, you know, they say, whoever they is, but Rory and I understand, horses are man's wear They are our mirror, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that is why horses are the ones used in all of the therapeutic riding programs, PTSD programs, um, hippotherapy. I mean, there are hundreds of varying programs that horses are the healers for the humans. And that is because they are our energetic mirror and they allow us to feel and see, they reflect back to us. And I think that, you know, indigenous culture understands the spiritual nature of this they understand the spiritual nature of all
1: we're just about at a time I think that's probably the perfect way to end you guys talking about your personal feelings and, and interactions with horses and I'm so thankful you mentioned Yellowstone because it's so well done and it works on many different levels you want to talk about stewardship for the land that that TV program is addressing that it really is. Oh.
3: Larry, if I could just interrupt. Sure. Um, I did not know. I've only seen a few episodes of Yellowstone. I did not know Mo was on there, so I will definitely watch. But Amanda, would you just tell us what you did not know until you got to know Mo a little bit? What is his name in Lakota? What does it? What is the translation of his full name?
4: Well, it's it's in the book, right? So in one way, I would say people have to read the book to find out. Okay. But But, but no, because, so here's the, you have to read it because in that specific chapter, you have to read the whole thing to understand, right? Why this is so amazing. The amazing part is Moses's name in Lakota means um, he who brings the horse.
3: He who brings the
4: horse. And if you read the book in the chapter, when I met Mo and, had the honor to travel out to his home in Kansas and partake in um, ceremony, then you will understand why, you know, the synchronicity and the value of all of that is really incredible. The yes, director.
3: that was amazing. He who brings the horse. That's great. Well, I'm Thank good. you so much, Nanda. Thank you for this interview. Thank you for the work you're doing on behalf of the horses and the environment.
4: Oh my God. And Roy, thank you for, for, for you. You do a lot of work for the horses and the animals and for taking the time to read the book and allowing me to bring the information forward to your, to your listeners.
1: So as my daughter says, when I get off the phone with her, she always says, peace out till next time. I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye.
0: The artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cricifaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at satrumlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: She tied you to her kitchen
3: chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair